And uh, now let's, let me pray for us as well as uh, our kids as they go off to uh, Children's Church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we desperately need to hear from you today. Whether we know that's the case or whether we feel in our bones at this very moment uh, that, that that is actually true. And so I pray that by the work of your Spirit, um, that you would blow through our midst today like the wind and that you would be with your word, that we would see uh, and feel what you say to us and that we, would, that we would see Jesus with greater clarity and we would see what it means to know him and to follow him. Would you, uh, would you give this to us? We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So we're starting a new series uh, this morning that will be in all summer, and it's called uh, Experiencing God. And here's why we're doing this. If you look at the Bible as a whole, but particularly the book of Psalms, a relationship with God is a dynamic thing. It's, it's not a stationary, static kind of thing. It's dynamic. And we see this in the Psalms. Uh, and there's various ways in which we experience relationship with God. So sometimes it's an experience of what we could call orientation. Sometimes the reality of knowing God and experiencing his presence, it orients us and it roots us and it gives us a deep sense of of peace and confidence knowing who we are as God's people. The psalm that we're, re- that we're looking at this morning is, is meant to do this very thing. But there's other experiences of God that you see in the psalms. You see sometimes it's more of a disorienting experience where the experience is God seems really far away and everything seems chaotic. And then there's also those psalms that speak of, they start kind of in this disoriented place, but then God shows up or, or he answers a prayer, or he brings the person out of this place of darkness into a new place of being oriented by his word. The point is this, uh, the God of the Bible is not just an idea or a concept that you kind of intellectually assent to and agree with. He's not just someone that we are meant to study and gain more intellectual information about, but he's a person a person that we're meant to know and experience. And the Psalms in particular help us to know what that looks like, how to know the real God in real life, in real time. So this morning we're beginning with Psalm 8, and I just said this is a psalm of orientation. And in the words of one Hebrew scholar, he calls this psalm, it's like a sacred canopy. Under this space, under this sacred canopy, people are invited to live in a peace, to live with a freedom from anxiety, to live with a fundamental experience of life, that life is something that is graciously given to us. Uh, So, think about that idea of canopy, and think about where you are right now. Um, Most of you are in some kind of shade. Uh, And there is a real difference, let me say. uh, I I have a little bit of shade right now, but there's a real difference between right here where I was standing, you know, five minutes ago 
and where you all are at. You know, we all are experiencing the general summer kind of vibe and feel, but the experience down here, let me tell you, is one of kind of heat and exhaustion and thirst and the evil rays of the sun, like, affecting my skin, I'm sure. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm probably already drenched, but it will just continue to pour out throughout uh, this morning. While those of you under the shade of the canopy, it's like cool. And the breeze is so nice. And it's calm. And the invitation of Psalm 8 is to come live under the canopy. It's to live under the canopy of the God who made us who cares for us, who loves us, who invites us and dignifies us to participate in his rule. So here's what I want us to do this morning as we, as we unpack this psalm together. If you have it out, that'd be really helpful because I want us to, to unpack the psalm. But I want us to feel the real difference, the real difference of experience between the space of isolation and, ex- and being exposed and being unprotected and the other of life under the canopy. So first, uh, let's look at Psalm 8, and I want to consider Psalm 8 from this perspective of, wh- of what I'm going to call the anti-Psalm 8 life. Life as if Psalm 8 was not true. Second, we'll think about what it actually looks like to live as if Psalm 8 is true. What does it mean Uh, this canopy of Psalm 8. And then third, I want us to think about what it looks like to actually experience this and practice it this next week. So first, uh, the anti-Psalm 8 life, life without the canopy. Let's look at the psalm. If you consider the basic structure of the psalm, you'll see Psalm 8, you have verse 1 and verse 9 that form what's called an inclusio, or it's a bracketing structure, where the whole psalm is bookended by the praise of Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord, all in capital letters, that's, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's special covenant name. And right at the center of Psalm 4 is a question, and it's this, what is man? Now, I want you to think about, what if you strip away the bookends, you know, just get rid of them, cross them out in your mind, and then edit out everything in this psalm that has any reference to God or his activity or what he's doing? What you're left with is this picture of humanity looking up into the, into the heavens, into the sky, and asking this question of, what is man? what you basically have is like existentialism. You have like 20th century atheistic existentialism. What is man? What is a human being? It's a small speck of dust in this chaotic world of chance. A completely meaningless world into which all of our lives are just thrust. And as we look at the sky and we look at the vastness of the universe, we recognize the utter absurdity of our lives and our very existence. We see humanity in all of our weakness and frailty and vulnerability. And human beings who are just at this very moment happen to be at the top of the evolutionary chain in the world, but a world that is ultimately meaningless. And so you just have to go out there and live. You have to stare death in the face and all the absurdity of your existence, and you have to go create meaning for yourself. You have to go make yourself, make your life, or don't, because it doesn't really matter. 
But I want you to think about the incredible pressure that that is if that's your life. What if you fail? There is no forgiveness. What if you don't know what kind of meaning to make? What if you don't know what to do? I want you to listen to these words from a song uh, called Helplessness Blues by the band Fleet Foxes. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. But I don't. I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you soon. Someday you will see. What's my name? What's my station? Oh, just tell me what I should do. Do you hear that, that longing for order? That longing that someone would actually tell you who you are and what story you're meant to live in and what your life means and who you're meant to serve. The Wall Street Journal article from, uh, I believe it was 2019, with the title, Don't Believe in God, Lie to Your Children. Therapist Erica, if I'm saying this right, Commissar, writes this. As a therapist, I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations, and perhaps the most neglected, is the declining interest in religion. This cultural shift away has already proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. Nihilism is the fertilizer for anxiety and depression. According to a 2018 study uh, of the American Journal of Epidemiology, Harvard researchers found that involvement in religious community, especially weekly involvement in religious community, had numerous health benefits for children compared to their non-religious peers. And it's not just young people. Another Harvard study from 2020 found that women who attend weekly religious services were 68% less likely to die deaths of despair meaning deaths uh, related to uh, suicide, alcohol, or drug abuse, and men were 33% less likely to die such deaths compared to their secular peers. Now, obviously, none of this proves that God exists or that Christianity is true, but it does show that perhaps for many, living the anti-Psalm 8 life is almost unlivable. And maybe that's the case because deep down we were actually made to know the God of Psalm 8. And so life doesn't really work without him. But there's a whole other way that you can end up, not, you can end up living the anti-Psalm 8 uh, life. Because you can intellectually believe in God, and you can agree with what Psalm 8 says, but there's a sense in which it's not really like real to you. I'm going to reference a, a, a term from a, a philosopher named Charles Taylor in his highly influential book, A Secular Age. Uh, I'm going to get nerdy for one minute, but then there's going to be a very clear illustration, so just please track with me. Uh, the term is the imminent frame. And what Taylor means by this term, the imminent frame, is that in our modern world, because of a whole host of reasons, uh, uh, historical, social, cultural, philosophical, that the way in which we, uh, together as a society, have a social imagination 
a way that we imagine our existence and we think collectively about the world, it's framed entirely within a natural order, not a supernatural one. So the imminent frame means that only the parts of life that are right here and right now feel like they matter and they count. It means that things outside the natural order, things like everything basically in Psalm 8, God, uh, the transcendent, the supernatural, it doesn't feel like it really matters. It feels kind of irrelevant. And it's for this reason that, you know, you can intellectually agree with God, uh, with the idea of God, and you can believe everything that Psalm 8 says, but yet Monday through Saturday, it doesn't seem to make any difference, right? Does anyone feel that? Like, I believe in God, but when I go to work on Monday and when I live life up through maybe Sunday morning when I roll into church, it doesn't feel like it means anything. Let me illustrate it. So I remember um, uh, the pastor and writer, uh, Tim Keller, many of you are familiar with him. He was telling a story about a young girl in the first church that he pastored. I believe she was in high school at the time. And Keller talks about speaking and, and counseling this girl, speaking with her and counseling her. She was really down. She was having a lot of like, problems, and she was just kind of depressed. And she was a professing Christian. And so he was trying to remind her of all that she had in Jesus. And the conversation, from what I remember, goes something like this. You know, Tim says, okay, so you believe in God. And you believe that Jesus died and was raised for you. Yeah? And so, so you know that you are forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Yeah. And you know that you are deeply loved by the Father and you belong to him as his daughter. Yeah. And you know that you have a glorious future and an inheritance that can be never taken from you. Yeah, yeah. What difference does it make if none of the boys want to date me? That's the imminent frame. That's that exact thing. Right? And I'm guessing that all of us can relate to that, even though probably for many of us, it's not getting the boys to notice us. Although that's fine if that, if that is you. But it's, you know, like, what good is all of this God stuff if I never get married and I'm called to live this life of following Jesus and submitting my sexuality to him? I can't imagine that existence. What good is all that Jesus gives me if that's my life? What good is Jesus and all this stuff if I never have the success that I want? What good is Jesus if my kids don't turn out the way that I want? What good is Jesus if I'm not accepted by my peers and loved? What good is all this if I'm never healed of my illnesses? That's the imminent frame. It just feels kind of irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. So the anti-psalm life, life outside of the canopy, can be lived if you just out and out reject God, but it's also very possible that this is your lived experience, not because you've rejected God, but just because it's not real to you. Let's think about what it would be like if you actually lived under the canopy. So second, let's think about life under the canopy, living and experiencing Psalm 8. We saw this earlier, but the first difference of living under this canopy is that life is framed, not in the imminent frame, but it's framed by the praise of Yahweh, the faithful, redeeming God who is true to his promises. 
this is the name that's often associated with uh, God redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt, the God who was faithful and redeemed his people. This is the God, verse 2, who shows his strength, defeating his enemies through what seems small and weak out of the mouths of babies and infants. This is the God who made the world, verse 3. You look at the heavens, you you look at, especially, right, this is probably a nighttime psalm, you look at the stars and the moon and the sky, and it belongs to someone. It was made by someone, which means it's personal. It's your heavens, made by your fingers. The question of verse 4, what is man, is not a question of the absurdity of our existence in a chaotic and meaningless world, but it is a question of wonder. You care for us. You think of us. You who made all this. And that word that's translated, you are mindful, is a word that's often translated in the Old Testament to remember. It's often connected to God. When it's used of God, it's connected to his covenant faithfulness in remembering his people. So, for example, Genesis 19, 29, when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saves Lot, Abraham's nephew, the text tells us that God did this because he remembered Abraham. He remembers us, he thinks of us, and it causes him to act on our behalf. Reflect, uh, verse 5, reflecting on Genesis 1, 26 through 28, humanity is made by God, crowned as royal sons and daughters. And as these royal children were given the dignity and the privilege of sharing in his rule, verses 7 and 8, detailing us ruling over creation and spreading God's good, gracious rule to all parts of the earth. And then again, verse 9, coming back to where we started, bookending all of this in the praise of this magnificent, covenant, faithful God, Yahweh, who is our Lord, our sovereign. But let me say, it's entirely possible that you're listening to me describe this and you're thinking, perhaps, that sounds overly optimistic. Like, kind of like we're celebrating something that maybe used to be true, but when you look at the world around, it doesn't feel true. Do you feel that? Like, you could say, okay, maybe God created humanity for this purpose, this glorious purpose, but, but aren't we, like, deeply broken and ruined at this point? Because our experience is not often like this glorious psalm, but it is countless experiences that we read in the news of, you know, injustice and just really sad things. Countless examples of bitterness and strife and anger and hostility, uh, a complete disregard for God's good order of the world and relationships. Like, isn't that far more prevalent? The world, I think, in many ways feels more chaotic than this psalm seems to recognize. So what do we do with that? Well, if you were to take a step back and look at the psalms before this, especially 3 through 7, and then the psalms after this, 9 through 14, you would see exactly what I just described. Death, anger, hostility, 
bitterness, enemies surrounding you, people lying to your face, lamenting and crying, so much crying that your bed is soaked with tears and crying out to the Lord, how long, how long will you leave me here forever? What are you doing? Psalm 8, in other words, isn't just like a hearkening back to, well, remember the good days. But it's taking what human beings were always meant to see and rooted in this hope in Yahweh, the covenant faithful Lord. It's looking forward. And this is what we see in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 2. The author picks up this very psalm, this vision of humanity, of God spreading his good, gracious rule through the whole earth, through human beings, a vision of humanity freed from death and evil and suffering, a vision of humanity living as his royal children. And, and Hebrews says, this has begun in and through Jesus. If you flip to page nine in your bulletin, I want you to look at this text uh, from the good news of the gospel that we're going to read later. This is what the author of Hebrews writes about Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's a picture of Jesus identifying with us in his incarnation, being made man, taking on flesh, and as our representative, doing what we could not do. By grace, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus suffered death. He tasted death that he might taste death for you. He was brought low. He was humiliated. He suffered and he died that we might be saved, that we might be restored to God as his royal children. And this is, in a sense, like this is the beginning of what God is doing in and through Jesus. And this is what humanity is meant to be. Psalm 8 not only tells us, in a sense, who we are as people created by God and loved by God, but also the reality that's grounded in the hope of Jesus and what he has done and accomplished so that we can say, even in the midst of death and sorrow and struggle and pain and all those experiences, we can say, Yahweh, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is life under the canopy. But third, I want us to think about how we actually like practice that. How can you grow in experiencing that? This series is called Experiencing God for a reason. And I, so I don't want to just like talk about God. Like God is a very interesting subject and isn't it nice to have this lecture on God. But I want us to think about how we could experience God in our lives. So what I want to do is conclude with a pr an explanation of a prayer exercise that I'm going to invite you to do this next week. And I want to say especially, like, if you're here this morning or, I don't, I don't know, you're streaming in this morning and you don't believe in God and you're not sure that God is real, I want to specifically invite you to actually do this, like practice prayer this week. Because if God is real and God is a person, how is it that you think that you will come to know him? 
Like it will never be enough to just answer questions and get more information, though I commend you to ask questions and to think and to gather evidence, but it will never be enough to just do that. For all of us, what I'd like to invite us to do is to practice living under this canopy. And the practice that I'm suggesting is, uh, it's often been, it's called the daily examine. And it's sort of a prayerful meditation. Now, it's it's been used uh, in various kind of branches of the church and by different people, but it goes back to uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, 16th century Catholic, But it's a way of praying that invites us to reflect on our day and the things that have happened and the things that we felt in the presence of God. There are five parts to it. Uh, And if you'll try this this week, it takes probably about 10 minutes in total. Uh, I have a document, actually. I used to do this sometimes with students. So if you're like not a note taker or you don't have a pen on you, but you're like, I'm actually interested in maybe giving this a shot, email me. My email is on the back of the bulletin, and I will send you this document that explains what this is. But basically, I want to give us the five parts of this prayer exercise with just a brief explanation. And if you want right now, you could kind of even practice it as I'm describing it. First, there are five steps. First, acknowledge the presence of God. Stop, take a moment, and recognize that you are in God's presence. Second, thank God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, for who he is. Maybe you call to mind something from this psalm or you call to mind something else from scripture or something else you know about God and you stop and in his presence, you thank him. Third, recognize one consolation from the day. A consolation is an experience that causes you to feel alive, right? At at peace, joy, Uh, whole, comforted. It could be like a really encouraging conversation that you had with someone. It could be like you got a hug from someone and it just felt so great. It could be that you had this really great cup of coffee and your house was quiet and it was just awesome. Like I think of last night, um, you know, sometimes, you know, bedtime is crazy, but like last night I'm putting my daughter, Abby, down to bed and I'm kind of leaning over her and we're kind of just talking, and then we pray together, and I kiss her. And what you want to do is you want to reimagine that experience and then receive it as a gift from God because that's what it actually is. Four, recognize one desolation from the day. A desolation is an experience that causes you to feel anxious, frustrated, angry, sad, alone, guilty, shameful. Whatever that is, go back in your mind to that experience, that feeling, and ask Jesus to meet you there. Recognize that Jesus is with you in that spot. Maybe, you know, ask for his help. Maybe ask for forgiveness if it's appropriate. And finally, fifth, Consider the remainder of your day, or if you're doing this at night, 
Think about all that you have to do the next day, right? That's often so anxiety producing. It's lunch. I have 50 things to do. Oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I feel really stressed out. And now I'm angry at everyone that's interrupting me. But take the rest of the day in your mind and recognize that Jesus goes with you and that he is with you and he loves you. That's it. The goal of this is that more and more we would experience this psalm. That we would live as human beings were meant to live under the canopy of God's faithfulness, his love, his care, his activity in our lives, the hope and the realness of his promises to us in Jesus. Let's turn now to a time of prayer. We've heard God's word. We are in his presence. There's all sorts of ways that we struggle to believe, ways that perhaps in this last week that we've, that we've sinned against him, that we've turned from him. So let's take some time to uh, spend a few moments in silent uh, confession, and then I will lead us in prayer. Let's pray.